Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you just ask that you will bless your word so that it blesses us as you always do, Heavenly Father. Um, give us the heart to receive what you are saying to us and give us the grace to do, Almighty and everlasting God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen. We're doing a, a long series on the heart. Um, and we've kind of brought it to an end, but today we'll wrap it up, even though this is the start of another series. But today we'll bring that series to an end. So for two Sundays, I'm going to be um, talking about how God has chosen you. Can someone say amen to that? Amen. The, the background to this teaching series is taken from 1 Samuel, if you prefer, 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter. And you all know the story, 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter. Uh, it's the story of how David is anointed king. And the Lord says to the prophet Samuel that he should go to the house of of David's father, Jesse, and that he has provided himself a king there. Uh, of, of course, uh, Samuel is rightly concerned that Saul will not be amused if he finds out. And so he says, God, but Saul certainly won't be amused. There's a danger to me if I go. God says to him, don't worry, I've got a plan. Uh, go there and do a sacrifice to me. And under the guise of the sacrifice, uh, then anoint the person I have chosen as king. So Samuel sets off and arrives at Bethlehem. Now the elders in Bethlehem, when they hear Samuel is coming, because don't forget, he had, they just heard how he had dealt with a, 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 um, a, a Canaanite king. They were afraid, you know. But Samuel said to them, no, it's okay, I come in, in peace. Um, and then... He invites all of them to the sacrifice. And when they come to the sacrifice, um, Samuel is on this secret mission for God. And him and God are having this amazing conversation. And there's one, one thing that has challenged me, uh, every, uh, that challenges me every time I read this. It's, it's God, let, let me get to the place where I can be doing something with people, but you and I are having a conversation that is guiding me. So, uh, Jesse begins to parade his sons. I mean, he's just so excited. One of his sons is going to be king. And he thinks that it must be Eliab, the first son, because Eliab has the physical appearance of a king. Um, but God says something instructive um, to Samuel in verse 7. Don't look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Yeah, That's where God looks at. 
we might be fooled and conned and deceived by the externals, but God is never fooled. He looks deep into the person, into the person's heart. And so God says, not Eliab. And then Abinadab, another son, is paraded before him. And, and God said, no, not this one. And then Shammah, another son, is brought before him. And God says, no, not this one. And seven of his sons are brought before him. And God says to Samuel, not any one of these. Now, because Samuel knows God said he's, he's going to anoint a king and the king is going to be one of Jesse's sons, Samuel thinks that there's just got to be another son because God never gets it wrong. And he inquires and then um, Jesse says, oh yes, there's another son. Doesn't even name him, you know. He's, he's looked down on. Um, we don't know why. I mean, he's number eight of, of, of all the sons. Just the fact that he's last, possibly. But anyway, he's the, he, nobody even bothered to invite him to the sacrifice. That's how much they thought he wasn't relevant. Um, and then Samuel receives from God that that's the one. And he says to them, everybody stands until that one comes. And when that one comes, uh, who is David, he takes the horn of oil, anoints him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him from that day forward. The background to the story. And before I just talk about what I want to talk about, I was struck as I read that story by that first statement by God to Samuel. How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, Bethlehemite, for I provided myself a king amongst his son, sons. Whilst it's not the thrust of the message, as I meditated on those scriptures, that, those first two verses struck me very strongly. And I felt that it was a word that God wanted someone who is listening to hear. How long will you mourn? There are many things in life that can bring us to a place of mourning. And it's not just the obvious, the loss of a loved one. Sometimes it's the breakup of a relationship. Sometimes it's the loss of a job. Sometimes it's the collapse or near collapse of a business. Sometimes it's a betrayal by a close friend. The list goes on and on. Things that can bring us to a place of grief, a place of despondency, a place of despair, a place of sorrow. And a lot of times these things are orchestrated by the kingdom of darkness to put a full stop in someone's life. So that the person can sit in that place of mourning, of grieving, of sadness, of sorrow, of despair, of despondency. And stay there for much longer than the person should. Because of course, grieving is a natural process. Mourning is a natural process. When certain things happen to you, it would be unnatural not to, not to grieve. If you, if you hoped in this relationship and suddenly it breaks down, 
It would be unnatural not to grieve for the death of that relationship, for the death of a job, for the death of a business, for the death of a friendship, of course, for the death of a loved one. But at some point, God literally says, enough is enough. We don't know the state of grief that Samuel was in concerning Saul. But it's obvious that he must have been mourning. He was the prophet of the land. Look at what has happened to the king. Look at how the king has gone. His heart must have been heavy and saddened. It must have almost paralyzed him. As grief can sometimes do. Carrying a cloak of the sorrow and dragging it behind him. But at some point, God says to the prophet, how long will you grieve for him? And then God tells him what I wanted to say to someone that God has a plan for you that is ahead of that grief. Because God says to him, how long will you grieve? I have already set in motion a plan, a replacement for the soul that you're grieving for. So can I say to someone, there's daylight ahead. Can I say to someone, there's a greater plan ahead. Can I say to someone that your promotion is coming from that that particular place of darkness and sorrow and sadness and despair, if you would just look up and as the, as the Lord says to Samuel, go, you are going into a new day, a new dawn, a new tomorrow, and it is bright. Can someone say amen to that? So he says in verse 7, don't look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now that's a scripture that was confirmed by Paul in the New Testament. In Acts 13 verse 22, the Bible says, And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David, this is Paul speaking, as king when he had removed Saul. Paul is speaking, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Now, if you're even a casual student of the Bible, you should have a problem with that. Because here's God declaring, not just in the Old Testament, but confirming in the New, that a man who committed murder, killed Uriah, orchestrated Uriah's death, who committed adultery, slept with Bathsheba, and after sleeping with Bathsheba, and but knowing that Bathsheba had become pregnant, he wanted to pass off that child as Uriah's child. Deception, fraud, deceit, And yet, the Bible testifies that this is a man after God's heart. It would seem a paradox if you don't understand how God moves. Because here is a man who had done 
things that are abominable. But yet the Bible testifies. And someone might say to me, well, when God gave the testimony about his heart in 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter, he hadn't done all these things. Well, in the New Testament, long after he had done it, Paul testifies that this is God's testimony concerning David. So what could have made David a man after God's heart? Despite all these things. And that should be some encouragement for someone that despite the mistakes I've made, the sins I've committed, the wrong turns I've made, if I can find out why David was a man after God's heart, I can realign myself so that I also become a man or woman after God's heart. There are four things, and that's the crux of what I want to share with you today, that made David a man after God's heart. Don't forget, God has chosen you. So we're trying to find out how did God choose David? Because then we can align ourselves so that we also are chosen. We've been chosen in a general sense, but we are chosen into God's assignment, call, destiny for us. The first thing is that David had faith in God. There's something about faith in God that we haven't fully understood to the extent that when God sees faith in him, when God sees someone who trusts him against the odds, it does something to God's heart that you and I need to understand. The writer of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. Without faith it is impossible to please God. Please, I'm sure you're going with me in the direction I'm going because that means that where there is a little faith, God is a little pleased. Where there is a bit more faith, God is a bit more, bit more pleased. Where there is much faith, God is much pleased. There's something about faith, about trusting God, that just touches his heart in a way that we might not have fully understood. When the centurion made that declaration, when Jesus said, I'll come to your house, and heal your, heal your boy. When the centurion made that declaration in, in Matthew, the 8th chapter, verses 7 to 9. After Jesus said, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only speak a word and my servant, my boy, will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And and to my servant, do this, and he does this. Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. I'll come to your house. The centurion said, you don't have to come. I understand how authority works. Everything on earth bows to your authority. I understand it because I'm a man of authority myself, albeit at a much lower level. I say to a soldier, go, and he doesn't even think about it, he's gone. I say to a soldier, come, and he comes. And this is just me, a centurion, with a hundred soldiers on, under me. What about you, the creator of the ends of the earth? 
You don't need to come. Just speak the word and everything will obey you. What was Jesus' response? <laughs> Verse 10. The Bible says, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those following him, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. The Passion Translation says Jesus was astonished. The New Living Translation says Jesus was amazed. When Jesus saw the man's faith, he marveled. He was amazed. He was astonished. May God see your faith and marvel. May God see your trust in him and be astonished. When all the natural circumstances are saying the opposite and you stand with God, it causes God in heaven to smile. That's why God just loved David. Because against all odds, David always trusted in God. And he made it clear. When Goliath came against Israel, and soldiers of repute, soldiers who were veterans, were terrified and quaking in their boots. The young boy said in 1 Samuel, the 17th chapter and the 37th verse, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And when God saw that, of course, Goliath was dead already because David had faith. Many circumstances will come to test our faith. I pray that you and I pass that exam so that God can be astonished, can marvel, can be amazed that we took a position of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Number two, what's it that made David a man after God's heart? Number two, he loved God's word. He just loved God's word. I think if there's one anointing that I desire that David had, it is just that love for the word of God. A lot of Christians in their senses know that they should read the word of God. Sometimes we discipline ourselves, ourselves too. But I'm sure you know that is different from someone who just passionately loves something. You just want to read Psalm 119 and you marvel. And you know, that's the beauty of the Psalms. The beauty of the Psalms is that it's a window where we can sit on comfortable chairs, sometimes sipping a, 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 a cappuccino, and look into someone's very private prayer life. I wonder what your Psalms would be like, or my Psalms, if they wrote our prayer life. Would it be as interesting, exciting as the Psalms? Or would there be massive gaps? Didn't talk to God on Thursday. Said nothing on Friday. Spoke to him for 20 minutes on, on, on Saturday. And all I was asking for was for the house. 
And then on Sunday, went to Jesus' house, and Pierre reminded me that my Psalms would be pretty boring to read. But when you look at David's, you, you see the ups and downs of a man's prayer life. Very real. Not some superman. A real man who had some lows and had some highs. He says in Psalms 119 verse 14, I find more joy in following what you tell me to do than in chasing after all the wealth of the world. He says in verse 47, My passion and my delight is in your word. For I love what you say to me. I long for more revelation of your truth. For I love the light of your words, of your word as I meditate on your decrees. It was very clear that this was someone who was passionate about God's word. Who loved God's word. Someone where God's word was central to his life. He says in verse 81, I am lovesick with yearnings for more of your salvation, for my heart is entwined with your word. I wish we could all say that. My heart is entwined with your word. It's obvious this wasn't somebody who just spent 20 or 30 minutes on the word a day and take that box. It's obvious this was someone who carried the word of God around with him. Somebody who genuinely was passionately in love with the word of God. Someone who, whose love for God's word touched God's heart. He loved God's word. That's why the second reason why God said, this is a man after my heart. Can he say the same of you and me? Number three, he had a heart of gratitude. <laughs> the Psalms clearly puts on display the kind of heart that David had. He was just grateful. Psalm after psalm after psalm was David encouraging us to be grateful to God. And when you read the psalms, you might think that he sat down in one place and penned these psalms. No, that's not the case. The psalms were recorded through all that he went through in his life. In the highs and the lows. His gratitude wasn't only when he was on the hill. He was grateful in the cave at Adulam, sleeping on the hard rock floor, and yet knowing that he has been anointed as king. Looking around him, and the place does not look anything like a palace, he was grateful in those circumstances. He was grateful when he needed help. And instead of God bringing him some well-trained, disciplined men with resources, God brings him 400 
of the worst that you could imagine. Dejected, depressed, and broke. He was grateful. He penned Psalm 34, apparently, right after he had behaved like a madman to Akish, so that Akish, the king, the Canaanite king, would not kill him. And when God delivered him from Akish's hand, he wrote Psalm 34. You need to read Psalm 34. When he escaped from Absalom, he wrote some more about how grateful he was to God. You see, like he would say, we just have no choice if we understand that this God daily loads us with benefits. That's why he would say in that same Psalm 34, I bless the Lord at all times. At all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. And then look at his invitation. You can almost feel the man's heart. This was a man who was just grateful to God. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. He says in Psalm 69 verse 30, I will praise the name of the Lord with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. That's why he wrote all those songs. How can I thank God for what God has done? And I think what encapsulates who, his heart must be Psalms 100 verses 4 and 5. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. And he tells you why. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. He had a heart of gratitude. There's so much murmuring, so much complaining. And sometimes we're sensible enough not to verbalize it, but don't forget God sees the heart. There's so much complaining because I haven't got this. So much dissatisfaction because I haven't got this. I'm sure you have heard me make one statement from this pulpit a number of times. I make that statement again today. If God does nothing else in my life, zero, he says, Agu, no more. I will continue to be eternally grateful to him for all he has done. What God has done is a bit too much. That's the truth. I don't deserve what God has done for me. It makes no sense to me. Have there been valleys? Of course they have. Have there been some dark nights? Definitely they have. But anyone who knows me will tell you that even in the darkest of nights, I never lost by his grace the heart of gratitude that I had to God. You see, 
the glass can you can you can make it's a choice. The glass can either be half full or half empty. I have decided till I die that because I understand God's grace and mercy, the glass is always half full. Amen. Always half full, no matter what happens. I'm grateful for little things. I'm grateful for big things. Just grateful. Just look around you. So much to be grateful for. Just grateful. Grateful that you're here. Do you know there are better preachers than me? You know that. Don't worry, I'm I'm secure. You can tell me you know that. (laughs) There are better preachers than me. My God, some people preach. Some people preach. There are preachers who are much better who have nobody to preach to. I mean, look, look at you guys. Coming to hear what I have to say with all the ones online. Should I not be grateful to God? I'm, I'm very grateful. When I look at how many times I have cancelled myself out by my own actions and every time God has chosen to reinstate me into his plan. Please, allow me to be grateful to God. And it doesn't mean that there are no challenges. The trauma of having your son sleep with your wife on the roof of the house should make a man totally ungrateful. But in the midst of that, David was still grateful. There are too many people are defining their lives by one thing. No. One thing can make me lose a heart of gratitude to God. Number four. The last thing. So David's grateful heart. God just said, I just like this guy. You know, he's just, just like him. He thanks me for everything. He understands that it all comes from me. Number four, he had a repentant heart. You see, it wasn't that David didn't blow it up. He did. But you know, (laughs) when God finds a man that has faith and is willing to do whatever God wants, is obedient. That's what God said through Paul. He said David will do whatever he asked him to do. When God finds a man that is in love with his word, has a passionate love affair with God's word. When God finds a man that is constantly grateful, when that man or woman drops the ball, as we tend to do in life, If that person has a repentant heart, a heart that is soft, a heart that can be convicted by God, believe me, God is going to arrange the circumstances for that man to repent. That is what grace is. And listen, David was in a dispensation of the law. You and I are in a dispensation of grace. When David sinned, (laughs) this is 
my conjecture of what happened. And we'll find out when we get to heaven. God thought, you did that? You slept with the other man's wife, then killed the man? Because you know, David orchestrated that man's death. He, I mean, David, David sat down and planned that thing. He said, how am I going to kill this man so that they wouldn't know I killed him and this child will be passed off as my child? The child in Bathsheba's. You know, when he slept with Bathsheba, I, I, I tried to imagine how he felt when Bathsheba sent a message. Hmm. David, oh, it has happened. See, what happened? I'm pregnant. If David was African, he would say, yeah. <laughs> say, you're what? Say, I'm pregnant. David said, I'm finished. I am finished. And to make matters worse, he now thought, okay, let's, let me pass it off as Uriah's son. So he said to Uriah, go to your wife. Uriah had been fighting for him, but came back. And he said, go to your wife. David, he was hoping Uriah would sleep with his wife that night. And that child will be growing up looking like David. Uriah would think he's his son. But look at the nobility of Uriah. Uriah said, go to my wife in a time of war and expose my king. He says, no, I will sleep at the gate to protect you. David said, I'm finished. <laughs> and so David called Job. Job, Joab was like, the, you know, he was a schemer. So David said to him, you know what? It's chief of army staff. Send this man to the heat of the battle. The worst place in that fight. And at the heat of that fight, withdraw all the support from him. They will surely kill him. Now, why the chief of army staff agreed, I'm sure was because he thought, if I do you this favor, I have you. I'm going to come back. And they did that. And so Uriah died. And David forgot that there's a God sitting in heaven who is looking at the affairs of men. Somebody don't forget that. You did it at night. In pidgin English parlance, you chop clean mouth. <laughs> pidgin English parlance. That means, for those who don't speak pidgin English, you ate it. And you wiped your mouth, and you wiped your mouth, and off you went. You think so? You think so? You think you're going to escape? There's a God who is sitting in heaven and sees everything. This is my conjecture. God now said, hmm, "I'm going to kill this boy. The wages of sin is death. This boy's going to die." Then he sat back and thought, but this silly boy, you trust me. I remember the lion. I remember the bear. I remember what he said. You trust me. And then I remember the nights he would tell me how much he loved my word. I remember how he would write songs about me. 
I remember how he would read my word. Others would be out at naming ceremonies and 50th birthdays and 60th birthdays. Don't get under condemnation. I'm not, I'm not condemning anybody. And they'll be working in nice jobs till 10 and 11 at night. No time for me. But David always found time for me. He would read my word. He'd meditate on my word as he was going to the tube station. He'd meditate on my word in the, bo- in the bus. He would tell people about my word. He wrote lovely songs that they sing to me. And then he thought, and you know, that, that silly boy David, he was grateful. He was always thanking me. Oh, if I kill David, where will I find another like him? So what can we do? And you know he has a soft heart. So let's send Nathan. So they get Nathan, the prophet. So they go to David. So Nathan arrives at David. And tells him this story about this rich man. Who takes the only animal that a poor man has. And David is so incensed. Says, if that man is in my kingdom, he's dead. Nathan says, you're the man. But listen to how David responds. His response is instantaneous. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do this evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall not depart from your house because you have despised me and and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. Now I know when somebody hears that, they are saying, thank God for grace. Because there were immediate and severe consequences for his actions. But let someone not take grace for granted. As Paul says, what shall we say then? Romans 6 verses 1 and 2. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? This message is actually a warning for someone. The cup is getting full. You're doing it in secret. And God has been warning you. And you know God has been warning you. The cup is getting full. I hope and pray you won't remember this message when it is too late. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan says something to him. Verse 13, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And yet, that was the law. We are in a dispensation of grace. We must not take grace for granted and continue in our sinning. But with a repentant heart, with a heart that is genuinely broken before God, that's a heart that is after God's heart. That's the fourth thing I wanted to say. And if you want to understand what a repentant heart looks like, then you just need to read Psalm 51. 
I wish we had time to read the whole psalm as I end. I just want to read a few verse, verses, verses two, and, 2 to 4. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And David understood something. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David understood that I might have slept with Bathsheba and I killed Uriah and I formulated a fraud and great deception. But if my heart is broken, if my heart is contrite, if my spirit is broken by my actions, then I serve a God of mercy and compassion. And if I go back to him, he will forgive me. And he didn't just forgive him. He ended up with an amazing testimony. This is a man after my heart. He's a man after God's heart because he had faith in God. A man after God's heart because he loved God's word. A man after God's heart because he was so full of gratitude. And a man after God's heart because he was quick to repent once he was convicted. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you. Lord, we bless you. I don't know where your heart is. Maybe you haven't even given it to Jesus. Accepted him as Lord and Savior. Right now, the Bible tells us he's knocking on the door of that heart. And asking whether you will give it to him. And if you want to do so, just do it. Someone says, how do I do it? Just invite him in. How do I invite him in? Just say a simple prayer and mean every word. I'll pray along with you. You might be in here in person or you're watching online. He's knocking on the door of your heart. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Today I open my heart and receive your Son into my heart as my Lord and Savior. I give my life to you, Father. I make a commitment, a vow, to turn away from anything that I'm doing that is sinful as I commit my life to you today. Heavenly Father, thank you for receiving me. Lord Jesus, for coming into my heart. I thank you. I declare that I am now a child of yours, born again today into your family. 
in Jesus' name. And together we say, Amen and Amen. Hallelujah. Go on, you can appreciate God for that. Hallelujah. 